Uh, have you seen the uh, television show Married at First Sight? Uh, maybe some of you have missed that. It's kind of an interesting program. It, uh, I've seen it, and, and it's built on the premise that a couple, um, a couple comes together, and the first time they see the one they're going to marry is when she's walking down the aisle. No contact prior to that. Married at first sight. So what they do is they get counselors together, marriage counselors and so forth, and they talk with the different people who would like to try this. And so they get them together and they try to match them up as best they can. And then they get them to sign up and they come down the aisle and they make their agreement. And that's how they could. I could ask, what possibly could go wrong with that? What could, what could happen with that? So I thought you might be interested in that the um, marriage at first sight stats, how it's gone with the first 18 couples, four out of the 18 couples have stayed together. The couples that the experts put together they had to do that, which is about 22% of the rate. Well, now the national average for a marriage is 8.2 years. 8.2 for your lifetime commitment. And the divorce rate is about 40 to 50%, depending on what part of the country you're in. So when you look at the four out of 18, that seems a little bit high for that to make that. And you might ask the question, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody do that? Well, years ago at Andrews University at graduation time, I happened to get the story from the sun. Um, there was a man by the name of Burden, his last name was Burden, and he, he was uh, a young man who was just graduating from college that uh, graduation weekend, and he desperately wanted to go to be a missionary. And so he'd applied to be a missionary, and they had come out, and on this weekend, they were going to give him his graduation weekend, they were going to give him tickets because they were, the, United, uh, the church was sending him to China as a missionary. And so it was, he was graduating on Sunday morning. This was Friday afternoon. He was in the office of the pastor where he was meeting the general conference uh, of Seventh-day Adventist mission director who was giving him his tickets. And so he handed him, here's your tickets. And he looked at them and he said, well, there's a double set here. And he said, yes, one for you and one for your wife. And he said, well, I'm not married. And he goes, well, it's for you and your fiance. And he said, well, I'm, <laughs> my, uh, I'm, not, I'm not even dating anyone. You cannot go to China, he was told, unless you have a bride, unless you're married. There's no way. We don't, we don't do that. We don't send them out like that. So there's just absolutely no way you can go. So we've going to nip this. You're not going to be able to go to China. And he says, but my heart is set on it. I've, I've worked all this time to get ready to go. It happened and the pastor was standing there. And the pastor is aware of the issue. And he said, well, give me a few minutes. <laughs> so he went over to the girl's dorm. He called down a young lady. This is Friday afternoon. He calls down a young lady and said, do you know, and I lost his first name, I don't remember it, Burden, do you, do you know him? And she says, well, I've seen him on campus, I've seen him around. So, well, he's going to China. 
and uh, he can't go unless he has a wife. Would you be willing to be his wife and go to China? So they spent Friday evening and Sabbath together. They graduated on Sunday and got married Sunday night. What do you think of that? So they went to China. And understand there is a building in, on the campus of Andrews University that says, for, for the Burden family. They went to China, devoted their lives. Stayed married. Almost married at first sight. Okay? So I was, I was uh, talking to some young people, and I was telling them that story, and, and I, uh, I was getting various reactions from them, and, and I asked them, now would you let, would you let me, your pastor, pick your mate for you? Would you let me do that? And all of them are going, uh-uh. Oh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let the pastor pick my mate. I'm not going to do that. I says, well, come on, I'd do a good job. I said, no, no, no. One young lady said, yes, she would. I was kind of surprised. Well, she had an interest in my son, that's why. I just kind of <laughs> thought that was going to work. But basically, the times have changed, haven't they? Have changed from ancient times ago. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24? Genesis chapter 44. I was reading in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, and I ran across this. In ancient times, marriage and reign, uh, reign, excuse me. In ancient times, marriage engagements were generally made by the parents. And this was the custom among those who worship God. None were required to marry those that they did not love, but in the bestowal of their affections, the youth were guided by the judgment of their God-fearing parents. Were judged by the God-fearing parents. So when I do counseling for marriage counseling and premarital counseling with couples, I always like to ask them, how does your mom or dad feel about that? How do they do it? Because that's a good indication of uh, maybe what something's going on, something we need to discuss. So Abraham, verse 1, Genesis 22, verse 1, Abraham was now very old. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. And he said to his senior uh, servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Put your hand underneath my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, uh, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites that, uh, among whom I am living. Remember, they were up there in Palestine and Beersheba. Well, it's interesting that he is asked, and he's asking, he's so old now that he uh, has to ask a servant. Must have been a very trusted servant, huh? Very trusted servant that would do that, to go that. The question might be, well, why, is he, why does he not want him to uh, be among the Canaanites? Very simple word, very simple thing. Idolatry. Idolatry. And if you're going with me to the Middle East and going to the Holy Land um, this coming uh, April, we are going to uh, show you where the Canaanites offered human sacrifices as well. That's why God did not want them mixing with that. Did not want to bring that into his family. Verse 4, but 
but will go with my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Go back there. And he said, make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. And of course, we asked him, well, why not? Why wouldn't you? Wouldn't you let him go and pick a place? Well, there's a lot to this. A lot to this. Abraham did not want him to go back to the promised land, away from the promised land. This is the land that God directed us. He called us here. He made us live our family. We've come here. He's to be the one who's going to get it. So leave it here. He is to stay here, not to return back, because what if he falls in love with somebody back there and says, well, it's easier for you to move here than it is for me to go there. Besides, I've got family. So he didn't want that. He went on to explain that to him. He said, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in the native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can find the wife uh, for my son from there. So he will go ahead. Abraham knew God's will. And how did he know God's will? Because he had a relationship with God. That's how you find God's will. So his servant asked, and he went on, I mean, Abraham went on, if the woman is unwilling to come back to me, back here with you, then you will be released from the oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand underneath the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath concerning this manner. Now, he went, as he left Beersheba, he took ten camels with him and all kinds of gold and things with him as he made this trip. And the trip was, if you're looking at your Bible, from Beersheba down at the bottom of Israel, all the way up through Israel, then over on the Euphrates River, and then up some more north. It was probably over a thousand miles. It wasn't just a quick little trip. Not something you could do quickly and be done. So he made this journey. He had to be gone, I would think, for several months. He was making that trip and making that journey. And eventually, he ended up at the well of Nahor, right there in Mesopotamia, right there with um, where his father, Abraham's father, was. And when he got there, he got to the well, and as he's looking around, he's like, he begins and he makes this prayer. He says this prayer. Lord God, of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing, I'm standing beside the spring, he's telling the Lord, as if the Lord could not see. I'm standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. It was the custom that the young ladies and so forth would go draw the water from the family. They'd bring it back for the family, for cooking, for drinking. They also would bring it back for the animals. That was a very common thing to do. When I was in Kenya, Africa, uh, we needed water. There was no running water, no electricity. And we were trying to do some building. We needed to make some things for, we needed to make some uh, cement. And so in order to get water, the ladies had to go walk. They'd walk down. They had these five-gallon paint buckets, plastic paint buckets, if you've seen. We all see them and get them at 
Home Depot, they had a bunch of them, and they would walk down to the um, down to Lake Victoria, and they would take and bucket full of bucket, and they'd put it on top of their heads and walk back and bring the water up for that. Time trip after trip, these ladies would do that. So I, I turned to my wife, and I handed her a bucket. And I said... <laughs> she handed the bucket back. <laughs> Go get your own water. But it was the custom. It was the custom to make that custom to do that. He continued his prayer, may it be that when I say to the young woman, please let me, um, should say drink, uh, down your jar, and that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I will water your uh, camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you've shown kindness to my master. And the very next verse says, before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. Right there. So he yelled out at her, he called out to her, and he watching her, and he said to her, um, would you give me a drink of your water? And she says, oh, yes, I'm happy to, and I will take care of your camels as well. Do that. Aha! Aha! Without saying a word, he watched her to see and learn, is this the possible one? You're the one. As he's watching her closely, is this the one God had chosen? And then he asked her, whose daughter are you? Whose daughter are you? And she replied and answered to him and said, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of uh, Melchak, and born to Mahar. Aha! Abraham's Nephew. Bingo. So, not only did he lie, it was part of the family to bring the large extended family. And then the servant, he bowed down and worshipped the Lord. Praise be the Lord. The God, the master of Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. Amazing story, isn't it? Amazing story. Well, what happened is uh, they went and they uh, got invited to go to their home once they're identified. And now we have um, Rebecca. She, they gave her a gold ring to put. He gave her a gold ring to put in her nose. We don't do that to our wives today. Uh, but he gave her gold bracelets. And he and then told a story about why he had come, what his mission was, and Rebecca agreed to go and be the wife of Isaac, sight unseen. Sight unseen. We'll talk more about Rebecca another time, but I wondered today, as we are sitting here and have heard that and reckoned that story and thought about that, what should we learn from that? What should we gather? And I thought of several different things we could do. One of them was we could talk about the lessons of getting married. We could talk about that. And maybe that might be profitable for some of us who are thinking about getting married or whatever, or looking at some of the things in marriage that maybe we could talk about. 
those. That would be a profitable time to spend looking at the story. How did that work out? How do you find God's mate? How do you know that this is the right person, et cetera, et cetera? How do you know you're not being foolish and just getting married on a whim? My dad used to say, any fool can get married. And um, I don't know why he said that to me. But <laughs> lessons, lessons uh, we could spend time on that. We could spend time going over that. It would be worthwhile. But I would gather that most of you sitting in this room are not at this moment contemplating getting married. That you either have done it, or it's way in the future, or you're not doing anything. I would guess that most of you are not. Even though the Bible encourages, say, can two walk together except they be agreed. That's an important thing, Barton concept, isn't it not? So I said, well, since most of you, since most of uh, who are sitting here probably, probably do not have that on the agenda right now, maybe we should talk and go about a parent's responsibility. What should a parent do about relating to their children and growing them up and having that? Maybe that when most of you are parents, some of your children are already gone, and you're still parenting now, aren't they? Or they have gone and returned home. Have that already happening. So remember we talked about in the beginning, none were required to marry those whom they did not love. But in the bestowal of their affections, the youth were guided by the judgment of their God-fearing parents. God-fearing parents. So I think that there is an important part that we could have in saying as parents to our children and helping them make good decisions, making them happen. I was dating a young lady, or almost dating. I thought she was just a great young lady, and, I, and my mother goes, no, no. I said, well, you don't like her? I said, I do like her. She's a wonderful young lady, but she's not your match. And she turned out not to be. Not, not good. Not, no, that, would not, that would not have worked. But at the time, thought, oh, she's so lovely, so nice. But, it, you know, she's done well and so forth, but it just wasn't my match. I listened to my mother. So I ask, what do your parents think? What have your parents told you? What are their concerns? So if you're a young person coming up and you're looking and your parents are kind of raising red flags to you and going, you know, be careful with this, be careful with that, it is important that you listen to them because they have their, your best interest in mind, almost always. And so you have to listen to them. And if they're raising red flags, then think it through very carefully before you jump in, make it happen. But maybe you're not in that situation right now itself. Maybe you have, maybe you're not thinking about getting married, or maybe you're not a parent who has that going on in your family. Your children are too small, or they're up and gone and married all, all over. So, the, well, what would be the next thing as us? Well, be the next would be the church family's responsibilities. And I began to think about that. What we as a church family relate to this lesson about that God sent his angel ahead and found Rebecca to be Isaac's wife. That involvement of the God in their lives is a larger theme than just the wedding, you see. It's a larger theme of God involved in our lives and what's going on in our lives and what's happening. And I thought about our church. 
and what happens at our church. And the reality is, in thinking it, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does. Now, sometimes you look around, people say, oh, they never make a mistake, you know, they do that. But we all make mistakes. Sometimes we make huge mistakes. Sometimes we use poor judgment. I'd like to tell you that I always use great judgment. Not always. Not always. That's why it's important that we talk with one another and work it out with one another, you see. It's important that we have that exchange with each other. Important that we talk in the multitude of counselors as wisdom, you see. So we, we exchange and talk with them about it. So people, people make mistakes. So the church... Church stands as something, and we need to stand as something, as a church, recognizing God's leadership, and we don't know how God is going and working in our individual lives around us, but we must be open that God may be leading us in different ways, and that he is helping us. Because we need to recognize that a church, our church, is a place for wounded people. A place for wounded people. A place where people will come from all kinds of experiences and backgrounds that are gently trying to find their way to Christ, but they are wounded. In reality, all of us are wounded in some fashion. All of us are. So the church is to be a place not just for the super saints, but is to be a place for people who come who are wounded. Why would they need to come to the church? It's interesting when they did a survey and they were asking young adults, if you're really in trouble, would you ever turn to the church? Oh, no, not going there. Well, they had learned that the church would not welcome them with their problem. We can't be like that. We can't be like that. Because we are broken people, because we sin, because we use bad judgment, because we need to be open to accepting people to be able to come through our door and know it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Doesn't mean we condone their behavior. Not. We're there to help them. We're there to love them. Not here to make judgments about people. We're here to let them know this is a place where you can find Jesus and find help. Therefore, the church takes on a different role then, and then we find a place of refuge. That the church becomes a place where you can find safety and security. David, King David said, and he used this Hebrew word that he, he found in, in God, a kasah. A kasah was a place was a cleft or a place in the rock where you would go and you could hide yourself from the storm. And he found that God, he could hide himself and his shame in God. Believe that. See, so David knew that his sin, the sins that he had, that he carried, that he knew that God would accept him and not shame him. Even though he'd done wrong before God. That's amazing. He had a relationship with God. And so the church, I believe, needs to be that safe place as well. That safe place. 
You see, Abraham knew his relationship to God. Abraham sent his servant, knowing his angel would go ahead. We don't know who may walk through our doors, who the angel has sent here. We don't know. But I believe you would not be sitting here today if you had not been guided by the Holy Spirit in one form or another. So my brothers and sisters, let's be that place of refuge. Our responsibility to our fellow man reaches beyond let us find that way to be of refuge to them. If you are in a place of pain right now, if you are in a place, you are welcome here. We hopefully, prayerfully, would not shame you or embarrass you, but let you know that you are welcome. Let us help you carry your burden. Let us help you carry your pain. For there should be healing here. Our Father, I thank you for the story of Abraham. Oh yeah, marriage at first sight. But it worked out because Abraham trusted in you and you chose for Isaac who he should marry. We would all choose that. We would all choose that you would find for us the road to go. I believe you have found the road that we need to be on here as a church family. I believe that you're opening doors for other people. I believe, Lord, that we need to be a place of refuge, a place where people are loved and hugged, a place where people are lifted up. No matter what kind of garbage or what kind of baggage and what kind of past they've had, this is the way and the cross leads home. May you help us reach that. Help us be that. In Jesus' precious, holy name, amen.